Well, good morning once again. It is great to have you worshiping here at Faith Bible Church. Mental note, we'll see how the sermon goes with the emotions of today. I may not want to preach when Maddox is uh, graduating. We're very proud of you, son, Parker. Um, so we'll see how this message goes. I'm trying to collect myself this morning uh, as we preach the word. I want to take a minute, and we are in the book of Ezra. And if you will notice, we are in Ezra chapter 10, which is the final chapter of the book. And in a moment, we're going to dive deep into it. But before I I deliver the message, I'd like to give a story that I think will help understand what we're talking about today. The aspect of repentance and turning and changing and following God because of the grace and mercy that has been given to us by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To help, it's interesting because I had prepared this message and there's been a little twist to the story that isn't uh, sort of mere circumstance. I think it's providential. And in a moment you will see what I am coming up with and how God has worked. The story I'm going to tell you is simply this. Years ago, when I was a young man, freshly out of college at my first job in Pennsylvania, I had spent some time with good friends of mine in Philadelphia and was on my way home to where I lived in media, and it was late at night. I had a Subaru Impreza, and there was nobody on the road, and it was a four-lane highway. Quiet, 2 a.m., and I made the decision that I was going to see how fast this car would go. Simply to say, I got up to about 110 to 115 miles an hour down a hill, and life was wonderful until police lights came on behind me. At that moment, I knew that my life of carefree and wonderful living had just had a terrible consequence. I immediately slowed down my car, pulled over, the cop came up and he said, what in the world are you doing? And I said, I have no idea, please forgive me. <laughs> the simplest way to put it is this, for the next several months, I was living not knowing whether or not I would have my license revoked for six months to a year because the ticket was 115 in a 55 mile an hour zone. I also didn't have other means to transportation to work. And so interestingly enough, for a couple of months, I had to work with an attorney. I had to go in and I went before a judge. The judge knew what was going on and the simply thing was this. After talking to me and seeing who I was, he said to me, son, there are a couple of things here. You were recklessly driving and I wanna show you a couple of pictures of what could happen to you or to other people on the road. And he went forward and he showed me about six or seven pictures that are minted in my mind of individuals that were carefree and obviously suffered a consequence of reckless driving. He then turned to me and he said, but son, I wanna let you know that I am feeling grace and mercy for you today. I recognize that probably punishment enough has been sweating this out. He's also, to turn to me and he said, I also have a feeling that your attorney's fees are going to be punishment enough. And I will tell you they were. And then he turned to me and he said, but I'm gonna let you go free. And he goes, but if I ever see your in here again, I will come down on you as hard as I can be. And so what I wanna tell you is simply this. Interestingly enough, as great as that was, and this is the twist in the story, so, just real quick, Nana C, Papa Jack are in the house, give it up, whoop, whoop, my parents, right? So here's the irony behind this. 
They have come and they have rented a car of which it was supposed to be a sedan. Somehow, some way, providentially, God has given them a blue Mustang. <laughs> the doors open up and you see the Mustang symbol on the side, right? So last night, they had parked the car in the street and I went to go get that car and bring it around to the driveway so that they could get in. I turned the key, heard the engine. <laughs> it was late at night. There are no police on Redwood. And oh, was it close. <laughs> but because of the grace and the mercy that had been given me to before, but because of the fact that I recognized that I had been given another chance, I remembered and recognized that because of that, I didn't want to continue moving forward and take that Mustang down the road. That's the concept that we're talking about this morning. That's what we're going over in the book of Ezra. And I want you to just take a minute and encourage you in it. I believe, I think, do we have the timeline of Ezra by chance? Is that, is that there? I'd like to... Perfect, okay. Real fast, I need to go as quick as I can. We are in the final chapter of Ezra, but for those of you that are with us this morning, Ezra is about a book of the people of God coming back to him because of what God has done. If we recognize the fact that for a long time, the people of God were worshiping him, but little by little, what happened was other gods and other desires began to come into their heart. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, even before Ezra is on the scene, says simply to the people of God, I need to tell you something. If you continue to do what you're doing, there are going to be consequences. I am going to come before you. I'm going to bring about a kingdom that is going to destroy you, destroy where you live, take you from where you are, and put you in exile. But I also want you to know that I love you with an everlasting love. And after a period, I will raise up another kingdom that will take away that kingdom and bring you back to your land. So there are consequences for the actions of God's people. But the grace and mercy of God remain steadfast throughout the whole book of Ezra. As quickly as I can do this, what I want to let you know is, certainly enough, after the text of Isaiah, which is over here, along comes Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC, and the Babylonian army conquers the people of God, or the land of Judah. They remove them from where they are into a foreign land. And as prophesied in Jeremiah, for 70 years, the people of God are living away from where they are meant to dwell. Interestingly enough, though, as prophesied by Isaiah, God raises up another kingdom that essentially removes the Babylonian army and brings the people of God back to their land. This is the Medo-Persian army under Cyrus the Great. The book of Ezra is the story of how God, in his faithfulness, brings the people back to worship. They come back to the land through his covenant faithfulness. They rebuild the altar. They rebuild the temple, and God restores their people. However, after being restored, there is challenge there is difficulty, and yet God remains faithful. 
God raises up Ezra, as we see right in here, and he begins his ministry to the people of God under the reign of Artaxerxes. What we find in this story is, essentially, because the people of God are being faithful, they undergo challenge, but God continues to provide. Interestingly enough, toward the end, we come to discover that Ezra finds out something that is terrifying to him. The reason that the people of God had been put into exile in the first place was because they had moved away from God and began worshiping foreign gods, and essentially, God, as we know him, became confused. Ezra looks around and he begins to realize that the people of God are marrying foreign women. And he says, this can't happen. I'll explain that in a minute. And so something radical needs to occur. The reason that the people of God cannot marry foreign women is because not of racial purity, it's religious purity and the seed being planted to make sure that the Messiah Jesus comes. And so we get into this story, we get into Ezra chapter 9, and we get into Ezra chapter 10, which is really where the people of God repent. They turn away from the sin that they are committing. Last Sunday, the title was Repentance Times 10. This Sunday, the title is Repentance Times 100. Given the fact that the people of God were in sin, and given the fact that they were going to suffer the same consequence if they continued in sin, Ezra calls the people of God to repent. And so this morning, as we lay that foundation, the question that we're asking is this. Because of the love, grace, and mercy of God, repentance is the godly response to sin. But what does that look like? What does repentance truly look like? One of the things that I want to remind you of is, oftentimes, we do live under the grace and mercy of God. And I want to remind all of us that God cares for us, God loves us, Jesus has died on the cross to forgive us of our sins, and we are forgiven when we've given our life to Him. However, what I want to also let you know is oftentimes we tend to pervert the mercy and grace of God. And think that just because Jesus has died, we can continue sinning. It doesn't matter. We can continue just living life on our own. And interestingly enough, Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. May uk Genoto in the Greek. It is the most forceful comment. He's shouting out saying, absolutely not. Do not pervert the grace and mercy of God. He says, we've died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So we must remember that while there is grace and mercy of God and we are forgiven in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, God has called us out to be different. God has called us out to be people after Him. What I want to let you know is as people turn to God and as they repent, what does that mean? How many of you have ever seen somebody get caught for something that they've done? How many of you have seen somebody actually truly repent? How many of you have seen somebody apologize but then they sort of placate or they say, oh, well, it was the other guy. They made me do it. 
they're apologizing because they've been caught. They're not repenting because of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I want to share this quote with you. Jack Graham, pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church in Plano, Texas, not related to Billy Graham, because I know that that's going to be a question. Not related to Billy Graham. This is what he says. A regret is not an apology, nor is it repentance. To repent is to, is to own the offense. Confess it and turn from it to be forgiven. It is an action. It is, I don't want this anymore. I don't want what I thought. I'm going to turn in this direction away from it. And that's what we're speaking about this morning. So as I lay that context, if you would turn with me in your Bibles, I think that that will give you an understanding of what's going on. If we read Ezra chapter 10 and we don't really see how God has worked through his love and his mercy and his grace and his desire for the restoration of God's people through the first nine chapters, this chapter doesn't really make any sense. But if we do see, and we do see that the original sin that the people of God were in was that they were moving to foreign gods and the manner of how they were moving to foreign gods was because they were moving away from being holy before God. And Ezra begins to realize that the reason that that occurred was way back in the day the same thing was occurring. And now he's seeing it again. And he's saying, I don't want to go back. I don't want to have the people of God go back and endure what it is that they've endured for the last 70, 80, 90 years, which is exile from the land of promise. Ezra chapter 10, the people's confession of sin. Well, Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself before the house of God. A large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, the son of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the people around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Don't forget that. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our Lord, of our Lord God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehohanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate food and drank water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Within the three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. 
Now make a confession of the Lord, of the, uh, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is a rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken uh, care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God on this manner has turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Ashiel, and Jezaziah, son of Tikva, supported Meshulam, and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did as proposed, as were the priests selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Among the descendants of the priests, the following married foreign women. And I will spare you the list and the challenge of pronouncing the names. But I want you to take a moment and I want you to recognize the listing of the names. Now, in this, I understand that as you look at this, you would say, well, gosh, this seems quite severe, particularly for the culture that we are in. We are in a different time. We are in a different area where marriage is much different than this day. Oftentimes, the people of God would marry for specific purpose, for a plan. It was an arranged marriage, or it was a purposed marriage. It wasn't just falling in love with someone and getting married. You also have to understand that the most important aspect of this was that as we go back all the way to the beginning of the Bible, we realize that after the fall, God says, yes, you will be in a cursed land, but I am with you and I will restore you. I will bring about the Messiah through God's people. That is so fundamental to this because it is not about racial purity. It's about religious purity. The purpose behind this is that if the people of God begin to wander, if the people of God begin to dwindle, if the people of God begin to bring in foreign concepts to the set-apart holy nation that would bring about the Messiah, you endanger the opportunity for the Messiah to come. Now God is sovereign. God's plan always prevails. But that's what is at stake here. That's why in the law it's stated don't marry foreign women. So the first thing that I want you to look at is it's discovered that they're falling back into the sins that they originally committed. And Ezra has a bold response. He's weeping. He's tearing his cloth. We see this in chapter 9 and you say, dude, like, I don't get it. Like, why are you so crying? Why are you so concerned? And friends, it's because he's looking and he's saying, we are one step away from going back to where we were. And God's love and his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness and his steadfast covenant is what's brought us back. 
he's been faithful to us. And I don't want to go back. I don't want that to happen to our people again. And so, friends, the problem is is that the sin is so grievous for the following reasons. That there has to be hard action in repenting before God. The first thing I want you to see in these verses is this. What does repentance look like? The first thing I would say is this. That repentance should come from a conviction and desire to be holy before God. In chapter 9, I won't go back into it, but I do encourage you, for those of you that have been with us, to go back and look. When Ezra discovers what's going on, his heart is to be holy before God. It's not to look good in front of other people. It's not to not get in trouble or suffer the consequences of the action of the sin. His heart is saying, I don't want to be separated from you, God. And I'll tell you this. Ezra is a scribe. He's learned in the word. He's the leader of the people of God. And he's remembering the command that God has given. We see this in a variety of different spots in the Old Testament. But probably the clearest is out of Leviticus 11.45. And it says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. Recalling the fact that he drew the people of God out of slavery in Egypt and delivered them into the promised land. This is what I've done for you. Because I love you and I've provided for you. And he says to be your God. The reason I did this is because I want to be yours. I want to have a relationship with you. And then he says, therefore be holy because I'm holy. And friends, I have to lay this context because when we talk about being holy, this isn't legalistic. This isn't uppity up, I'm better than you because I'm a believer and you're not. This is because God is holy and set apart, glorious and loving and wonderful and merciful and forgiving and the maker of heaven and earth. He says, be holy, be separated, be different, be God's people. Why? Because I'm holy. It's his heart's cry. And so, friends, when we look at this, we then begin to see that Ezra says, we're falling into sin again. We're doing exactly what God told us not to do, and people don't care. So, friends, what I want to tell you is this. When the Holy Spirit convicts, there's love, there's mercy, there's grace. God will never leave you nor forsake you when you are in Jesus. But I want to tell you that when we repent, the first thing is is that it should come from a conviction and a desire to be holy before God. God, I want to be yours. I want you to be my Lord. And I don't want to be separate from you. I don't want to continue in this sin that is struggling my relationship with you. Friends, the next thing I want you to see, particularly in chapter 9, is is that repentance should come from a heart to honor and obey the word of God. Not legalistically, again. 
But friends, the reason that we have the Bible is not so that we can be sequestered or strangled. It's so that we can be free in Jesus Christ and live the life that God has given, which is good. Yes, there are restrictions. Yes, there are some rules. But when we understand the relationship that we have with our Heavenly Father, we realize that the rules and regulations that God gives are for our good. They're for our freedom. They're for our growth. I'll give you an example. I've said this before. You all know Noah. He's a great guy. We love him to death. But simply this, as his father, if Noah comes to me and he says, Dad, for my fourth birthday, I want an operating chainsaw. And I turn to him and I say, no, son, you may not have it. What is Noah going to do? He's going to think I'm the worst dad in the world because that chainsaw looks really good. But he doesn't understand that he's too young to operate a chainsaw. And as his father, because I love him, I know best. And so even though he's upset and he sees the rule, and he's like, oh my goodness, this it can't happen, we know what? That as a father, that's what's best. Friends, sometimes when we look in Scripture, when we read God's Word, it's there to convict. It's there to grow us. It's there to mold us. It's there to change us. Not so we can elevate ourselves above other people. Not so that we can feel guilty and unforgiven. But to rest in the mercy and the grace of God. And when we have the rest and mercy of grace in God in our hearts and in our lives, and we realize that He loves us in spite of our sin, and that He is willing to forgive, wanting to forgive, always offering to restore us back to himself. That's what drives our hearts to be holy and also want to obey his word. Now, why is this important? You say before, Ezra, this seems kind of like a big response that you're saying, hey, get rid of foreign wives. Well, Ezra knows the word of God. And the word of God, back in Deuteronomy, before all of this happens, before any of this occurs, is this. It says, do not intermarry with them, meaning foreign people, to keep God's people pure. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will serve other gods. That's the purpose. That's why it's not racial. It's religious purity, for they will serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. The heart of God is saying, look, I want you to be holy because you are the people that I have chosen to bring about Messiah Jesus. And friends, what I want to tell you this morning is I know God is sovereign, but when we look at the cross and we look at what Christ has done for our lives, praise God that we have Messiah Jesus. That's what's going on here. That's what is at stake. And so God in his love says, look, I want you to be holy. I want you to be separated. And in order to do that, this is what I'm asking of you. Be the people of God and do not intermarry. And what do they do? They intermarry. What does God do? God comes and says, hey, I want to let you know that you need to stop in this sin. And if you continue in this, there are going to be consequences. And the people of God, you would think, say, oh boy, we better do this. What do they do? Whatever. And Isaiah comes and says, it's going to get bad. There are going to be consequences. And they say, whatever. Isaiah comes and goes, and 150 years later, after everybody thought that this guy was crazy, lo and behold, exactly what Isaiah says occurs. Nebuchadnezzar comes 
and he destroys the kingdom of God. And friends, I will tell you, this is not a myth, this is not a fable, you can look it up in the history books. And sure enough, 70 years later, the Medo-Persian army comes and begins to restore the people of God back. And friends, once again, I can tell you, it's not a myth or fable, you can look it up in your history books. And the heart of God is to restore the people of God back to himself in spite of the sins that they commit. But Ezra realizes we are in sin and we need to repent. So number one, when we repent, it should come from a conviction and a desire to be holy before God. Number two, it should come from a heart to honor and obey the word of God. Ezra's looking and he's saying, we are not obeying the law. We are not obeying what God has asked. And so then we get to chapter 10, and we see this almost radical, almost too radical approach. But friends, it's out of a heart for God. And sometimes the world will look and say, gosh, that seems a little harsh. But friends, sometimes when we're called to be holy, our actions are to repent and turn to God and God alone. In the first 15 verses, what we see going on is essentially this next concept. And what I want to tell you is, is the next point of repentance is that repentance should have a commitment toward change. It should have a commitment towards change and transformation, not deflection. Friends, the world wants to deflect its guilt. If you look at apologies today among so many people, it's always, well, I'm sorry, but, or I'm sorry, but this person made me do it, or I'm sorry, and I know it's bad, but you should look at that person over there and what they're doing. They're 50 times worse than I am. And here, it is no, I am guilty, I am in sin, I own it, it is my fault, and I want to change. And it's not because I'm caught, it's because I want to be holy before God. And I want to be different, and I want to turn, and I want to change. And so in the first 15 verses, what we're seeing essentially is, Ezra is looking and the people of God are saying, you know what, you're right. We're wrong. We are in sin and we don't want to have that any, happen anymore. And so what do they do? Well, we could stop at verse 3 and read, so the people of God knew they were in sin and then they said, well, it's not our fault. God made us do it. But it continues on and they say, no, we have done this. We have committed this and we want to be holy before God. We want a relationship with Him. And so what we see, and I'm going to go essentially... To verse 7, a proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders. And he himself would be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. Friends, it seems extreme, but what I want to tell you sometimes, when you're dealing with a sin in your life and you are repenting before God, extreme measures need to be taken. Friends, I don't know what kind of sin there might be out there, and I don't want to be the sin police, and I don't want people feeling guilty, but I do want to tell you this. 
If you are convicted of your sin, I know this is a hard message to hear and you're wanting to repent, this is how you do it. Too often people say, oh God, forgive me, and they keep moving in the sin and they don't turn and they're not convicted by God. And friends, I am not God and I am not you, but what I will tell you is that is not repentance. Repentance should have a commitment toward change and transformation and not deflection. We continue on and we see here in uh, verse 11, I'm going to kind of highlight, now make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and what? Keep sinning. No, make confession to the Lord your God and do His will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. That's the action. You're in sin. This is what's going on. And the way to remove that is to take action and remove yourself from what you have committed. And then the other thing that I will tell you is this. It's interesting because we see, first and foremost, that when the people of God recognize what's going on, we take note that it's a rainy day. Isn't it? I don't think that's coincidental. I think that's providential. There's a lot of conversation about what goes on there in the commentaries, but probably the biggest thing that I can see is I think that that is God demonstrating his weeping and his desire to be with the people and the fact that the people have so easily removed his mercy and his grace and forgotten his steadfast love. So what we see as they come together and they say in verse 14, let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married foreign women come at a set time along with the elders and judges of each town until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. They realize what they have to do. And then they say, only Jonathan, son of Ashiel and Jezaziah, son of Tikva, supported by Masterloon and Shebedai, the Levite, oppose this. It's interesting. There's two ways to look at this, and I think the better way to look at it is the second proposal that I'm going to give. The first one is, is people think that these individuals opposed the action. They were the ones that said, no, let's get away. Let's not do this. But the more that you read, and the more that you look in the context, and the more that you look at how it's written in the Hebrew, the second proposal is that these individuals were actually saying and disagreed with the timeline in which it would occur. They wanted it to happen faster because they were so concerned about the sin and the grievance before God. They opposed not the action, they opposed the timetable and how they would go about doing it. Because we're going to see in a minute that the timetable that it took to accomplish this task was three months. It was messy. It was hard. It was difficult to do to figure out how to separate the sin that had been committed. And so that's the next point that I want to make, found in verses 16 to 18. And that's simply this, that repentance is not often an immediate action. It can be. But it can take an extended period of time. Friends, sometimes out there, some of the sins that we struggle with may not be immediate. And sometimes we may have a hard time getting through them. Sometimes it may take an extended period of time of turning and turning and moving and breaking and moving away, etc., etc., etc. 
But one of the things that I want to tell you is this. The enemy has a trap, and that's simply the idea of a quick fix. I'm going to repent, God is going to forgive, and all is going to be well. And you repent, and you forgive, and the next thing you know that you think that all is well, and you're right back in the sin that you've committed. And you realize, I've committed it, and the next thing you say is, it's unforgivable. There's no hope. I just might as well forget it. I just might as well look at it. Or you begin to deflect, like I've said before. Yeah, I know I'm in sin. Yes, I know I struggle with this, but boy, you should see that guy over there or you should see that family over there. I don't sin as bad as they do. And friends, what I want to tell you is sin is sin. God loves you. God has forgiven you. But friends, God has forgiven us so that we can be separate and holy before God. Not so that we can be independent and continue in sin, as Paul says back in Romans. Interestingly enough, in verse 16, it says, So the exiles did what was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. Okay? Basically, the simplest way to put this, I'll, I'll try to, it's like October, they sit down, and they finish dealing with all the men. Let's see here. I'm trying to get where I'm at. Finish dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Okay? And this was in the first month of the year. So probably January. Three months it took them to figure this out. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is sometimes in order to continue moving forward to remove the sin, it takes continual action. It takes depth. It takes hardness. It takes ugliness. It takes perseverance. And friends, I guarantee you during this time, as they were looking, I bet there were times when they said, you know, this is just too hard to do. We just can't figure it out. It's taking too long. Let's just stop what we're doing. But friends, the sin was so grievous, they had to remove these people. And the next thing that we see in verses 19 through 44, essentially, is this. It says, among the descendants, okay, at verse 18, of the priests, the following had married foreign women, and then we see, obviously, the listing. And in the end, okay, at verse 44, it says, all these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. And what I want to tell you is this. When we look at verses 19 through 44, when we talk about repentance, and this is probably one of the hardest things that we need to realize, is that repentance will come with a cost. Repentance will come with a cost. Yet our desire to be holy should outweigh the cost of our sin. What do I mean by that? Trust me, I understand. When I look at this, I'm like, holy cow, Like we're separating people from being married. Like, What's going to happen? This is ugly. This is hard. But friends, the reason that they're doing it is because God had commanded them not to do so, and they had become corrupted in their worship and their holiness. And they chose to do it. And here's the kicker. You think, well, gosh, these people, you know, maybe they fell in love. Maybe they did this. Maybe they did that. Like, this is hard. Friends, it's interesting. What we discover is the majority of the reason that these people were doing it is because they were looking around and as they walked into the foreign land, they were going, got a wife. 
But boy, oh boy, that lady over there, version 2.0, looks pretty darn good. Gonna move on up to the east side, to a deluxe apartment in the sky. What do I gotta do to get rid of my wife so I can marry that one? That's the heart of what's going on here. Interestingly enough, we discover in the book of Malachi, the prophet. Now, Malachi is contemporary to Ezra. Not the book of Ezra, but to Ezra. We discover that the purpose of Malachi is simply this. He is calling out God's people, and what he's saying is, you are in sin because you who have wives are looking for ways to divorce them so that you can have foreign women to be your wife. That's what's going on. That's the majority of the sins that are committed. So not only do they know that they're not supposed to intermingle, they are disrupting the word of God. They're choosing to walk away from God. They're looking and they're being tempted and they're saying, I've got a wife, she's getting old, but boy, that lady over there looks really good. Friends, I'm sorry, but there's no other way to describe this but sin. They're going completely away from what God wants for them. In Malachi 2.14, this is what he says in context of what is transpiring. It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. Because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. It's summarizing the fact that you have been given, you are to be faithful, and you are breaking the covenant by choosing to marry with foreign wives. Which, friends, in God's eyes, is not a marriage at all. That's what's at stake here. That's why these people are in sin. That's why this eradication seems so harsh. Because the people in their own desires have said, I know the word of God. I know it tells me not to do this. I'm not going to listen to the conviction of God. I'm not going to listen to the counsel of his word. I'm going to look at how I can get what I want by removing what God has given and blessed me with my wife, so that I can go and get what I want, which is wife 2.0, or the deluxe apartment in the sky on the east side. Friends, that's why this is so hard and ugly. Not because of God, but because of us. And friends, what I want to tell you is this. We could look and have God say, I'm done. I'm done. You've messed it up too much, too hard. But what does God do through the story of Ezra, through the remaining prophets, through the Messiah Jesus, through the relationship that we have with him? He says, yeah, you've messed it up. But I love you with an everlasting love. And you are mine. And I'm going to go to a point that as you continue to look for yourselves, I will give you my one and only son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for you so that you may have eternal life and be forgiven. 
in spite of your sin, of which every single one of us in here is guilty of. Friends, that's mercy. That's grace. That's steadfast love. And when we look at the cross and what Messiah Jesus has done for us, that's what draws our hearts to want to repent when we are in sin. Not so that we can look better, not to be legalistic, not so that we can say, oh, I'm guilty, but oh my goodness, Lord, I have a conviction and I want to be holy before you. I want to honor your word and what you've asked me. I want to have a commitment to change and transform and not deflect. I own my sin. I own my struggle. I recognize that it probably will take time. It probably will be hard. I also know, Lord, that sometimes if I repent, there will be a cost. Let me give you some examples. Friends, sometimes in business, there may be some unethical things. You might sit there and say, gosh... If I go and I change, or if I call this out, I could lose my job. Friends, what I want to tell you is this. Will you maintain your ethics, or will you continue in sin, even though if it means it will cost your job? Friends, gentlemen, I know this is hard, but I want to speak to you. I don't know, and I'm not convicting anyone, but what I do know is, is that men struggle with pornography as much in the church as they do outside of the church. And what I want to tell you is this. Will you continue to deflect? Will you continue to change? Or will you go and recognize that you will go before God and repent and realize that it could cost, it could damage, it already has the purity of the relationship with your bride. But are you willing to do so, to be holy before God, trusting that God in his love and his mercy and grace, if you truly repent, will restore the marriage and those things that you have broken so that you will be whole? It comes with a cost. But that's what Ezra is speaking to because of our holy God. Friends, the take-home truth that I want to leave you with this morning is this. Because of the love, grace, and mercy of God, genuine repentance is the godly response to our sin. And genuine repentance is what I've listed down through here. Friends, please remember that the mercy of God and grace of God is always available and lovingly, what I want to tell you is it's in those moments where you find yourself in sin but realize that God loves you and cares for you no matter what is when his grace and mercy is so sweet. Going back to that story about the ticket, I cannot tell you how sweet the grace and mercy was of that judge when he said, go free. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We recognize that it is a challenging one from the book of Ezra, but we realize that your word is profitable to all who will hear. Father, thank you that the mercy and grace of our God is available to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, may we recognize that even though all of us are guilty of sin, in Jesus we have been freed and forgiven of it. But Father, I pray too that we would realize that because of that, that doesn't mean that we have free license to continue in sin, but rather we're called to be set apart or holy before our God. Father, in those moments where we do need to repent, I pray that we would recognize that repentance comes with a cost. There are prices to it, but Father, also I pray too that we would want to be holy before you and honor your word. We'd want to change and transform. We'd recognize that perhaps whatever it is that we might be struggling with may take time, but we would continue to go to you and ask your hand to lead, guide, and direct us. 
as we turn away from whatever sin entangles to be holy before you. And Father, may we realize that that's not a God that's pushing us down, it's a God that's lifting us up, who loves us and wants what's best for us, who cares deeply for who we are and loves us with an everlasting love through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in your name and your name alone. We ask it by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say,